You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Why do humans behave the way we do? Most yoga teachers that I have had the pleasure of meeting and interacting with are caring, thoughtful people who really want to make a positive impact in the world. We have this common framework of yama and niyama to guide our behavior. But when we look through that lens of yama and niyama, there's so much room for growth, both on a personal and a cultural and a worldwide level. So how can we, as yoga teachers, behave in ways that are in alignment with our ethical framework And how can we help and inspire our students to do the same? In order to answer these questions, we can turn to the frameworks of neuropsychology and behavioral psychology. While the processes and motivations that determine human behavior are pretty complex, the focus on this question of habit formation over the past few decades has led to some really huge leaps in practical understanding about why humans behave the way we do, which is often counter to our own best interests and, frankly, the overall benefit for humanity and the planet we all live on. However, I believe that the more we understand what drives human behavior, the more that we can hack our own instincts and tendencies that sometimes lead us astray and use more cognition, more of our prefrontal lobe and our higher levels of thinking to make wise choices. And as yoga teachers, we have a double motivation for learning this because we want to influence and figure out our own behavior, but we also want to help our students do the same. I talk about the science of behavior change, habit formation, and neuropsychology on the podcast all the time because I personally love understanding how the brain works and learning about how the brain works and why humans behave the way they do has had such a huge impact on my own personal quality of life and my ability to live my values. Today, I'm really excited to bring on a guest who studies the stuff for a living and is a wealth of information, specifically about the difference between what many of us think we know about behavior change and what's actually supported by research. My guest, Alex Haley, is a behavior change researcher, a meditation teacher, and a former co-manager of a yoga studio. He's also a co-founder of the Benefit Corporation Offering Tree, which is an all-in-one digital platform for wellness professionals. So without any more preamble, let's jump right into my conversation with Alex, which I think is really fun, accessible, and informative for psychology nerds and beginners alike. Welcome back to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast, Alex. Great to see you again. Thanks, Mado. It's great to be here. It's good to be with you again. Yeah, I was really excited when you proposed this topic because I think it's so relevant to yoga teachers from two angles. So we're going to talk about behavior change today and the science of behavior change. And as yoga teachers, we need to understand this both for ourselves, 
looking at our own behavior and the changes we want to make. But then we also want to help our students because it's in our mutual best interest for them to develop the habit of attending their <laughs> attending classes regularly, having a regular practice. And what we teach them, what we share with them could spread out to other aspects of their lives as well. So I think this is really cool. Tell me what got you interested in this topic. Um, yeah, so I, I'm interested in it from a couple of different angles. One, um, I, in my younger days, uh, had been doing marketing. And it's actually something that is often talked about within marketing circles, you know, this idea of behavior, behavior change. And so that was really interesting to me. Um, but the other angle was when I started to um, get more into cognitive science and research, I, it came up again. And I said, well, here it is. And I was just fascinated that this is like a core um, human process that once we understand it, um, in a way, it really makes it approachable and understandable. And for me, it helped me understand some of my own behaviors so that I could go, oh, now I understand why it's easier for me to create a new behavior as opposed to trying to undo an old one. And what's the process for doing that? So tell me, what are some of the behaviors that you have changed, altered, or created with your new knowledge for yourself? One of the behaviors is, um, actually, this is very personal uh, because it's in, we're in the midst of the pandemic. So uh, it's with my daughter, who is... Um, uh, she's now three, and so she was having sleep issues. And this is, you know, very common right now during the pandemic with um, kids just having difficulty sleeping. And and so this isn't a story necessarily just about me, but it's about how I was able to apply this with my daughter. And um, what we discovered was that uh, she was lacking a basic routine. And so what I knew from behavior change was that, okay, um, my partner and I were talking about, well, what can we do here? And we came up with this idea of creating on the wall, just a visual indicator with the steps that were involved in bedtime. And what we would do is we would have a cue, which was, okay, it's about this time. And so we would always give her a little warning, say, okay, about five minutes to bedtime, three minutes to bedtime. So she could anticipate, okay, so this is the cue. And then once the cue was started, she knew exactly what the steps were in the routine and then the reward for that was that she got to spend time with dad right before she went to bed. So I would hang out in a room for four minutes and she could do whatever she wanted. She could talk to me. She could show me her stuffed animals. Um, she, was lying in, she was lying in bed, but she could do that. And so what we found is that pretty quickly, the sleep issues started to dissipate. They started to, you know, not totally go away, but very quickly they started to diminish. And so this was an example where I was like, oh my gosh, this is a godsend. I mean, to be able to figure out how to help my child sleep in these really difficult times. So to me, that's a really recent and personal example of why this stuff matters. Wow, I can relate so much. So we have a five-year-old and our cue for her, we we actually set a timer when it's bedtime. We set a timer on our, on she sets the timer. She uses Siri and she says, Siri set a timer for whatever amount of time we've decided we've agreed on. And then when the timer goes off, that's when we know it's time to go upstairs. So it's giving her like this warning. She knows it's coming. And then this really almost Pavlovian audible cue that it's time. So that's so funny that you, <laughs> that that's your example. Cause I can really, I can really relate to it. What do you think are 
a lot of the misconceptions that people have about behavior change? What are people, when people are struggling with behavior change, why are they struggling? What are they missing? Yeah, there's, there's two ways I'd like to think about this. One is there's sort of like the popular myths that are out there. Um, so I can give you two examples of some popular myths, and, and we all get caught by these. Um, and it's sort of like that folk wisdom, wisdom or conventional wisdom. Uh, so one of these that um, in, in this specific topic is this idea of like it takes 21 days to form a new habit. And um, the what's interesting about this is that if we actually delve into some of the history, it turns out that this idea that it takes 21 days to form a new habit came from a book in the 1960s written by a cosmetic surgeon who basically said, I think that it takes approximately 21 days uh, of you practicing self-affirmations and positive behaviors for that to kind of let go of an old image that you might have about yourself and to gel, literally, that was the word that he used, um, uh, this new um, habit. And it's been repeated so often that it's almost taken as like, well, this is what it is. You know, it's almost like it's a scientific fact. Of course, the reality is that it's a lot more messy than that. So, um, and, and what I'm referencing here, just to give credit to the source is, uh, it was from a professor at the University of South Carolina, a psychologist named uh, Wendy Wood, who did a lot of this kind of, what was the history of this myth around 21 days to form a new habit? There was a study that was done out of the UK where they looked at this and they said, well, let's actually test this. You know, let's find out um, how much time does it take to say, like, have a piece of fruit with lunch or drink more water. And what they found is that it's, it's not so clean cut. It's not 21 days. For some people, it might be 18 days. For other people, it might be 254 days. On average, it's about 66 days. So that's two months and one week. So one of the big challenges is that we have all these myths about, um, you know, what's involved in habits. Another classic one that I also like to talk about is um, this idea of um, 10,000 steps, right? This is the modern version of the 21 days that's been around. Turns out, I don't know why 1960 is a popular era, but there was basically 1965, a Japanese company that was selling these little pedometers. And they said, well, we're going to have it be 10,000 because the character for 10,000 looks sort of like a person walking. So it was a marketing strategy. And yet now if I look at my Fitbit, it tells me to get 10,000 steps. But the science behind it is again, a little bit more complex. So there was a study that was done. This one um, was looking at um, elderly American women and how many um, steps they needed to decrease mortality. And again, it's much more of a nuanced discussion, right? And so what they found was that it's about 4,400 steps was associated with a significant uh, reduction in, in mortality. And they found that even 2,000 steps um, had, you know, it was associated with positive health changes. And if you got to about 7,500, it didn't really matter beyond that point. And yet we all have this myth of like, it's 10,000 steps. Um, so it's hard because we will pick up this kind of conventional wisdom, but we don't know, is it actually backed by, was it ever, you know, um, investigated or is this more on the marketing side that I was talking about at the beginning? It came from a marketer and it's, it's effective because a marketer thought of it and yet we all take it as, oh, this is the truth. Well, I think most of us don't want complexity. We want sound bites. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> That's right. The interesting thing though about 10,000 steps is that since it's an overshoot, if you shoot for it, you're much more likely to get 4,000 steps, right? Versus yes. if you shoot for 4,000 steps, then you might not always reach it. 
I, I know this because I have a Fitbit and I pay attention. And these days I'm getting 10,000 steps because, you know, as you know, since you have a Fitbit too, it, it celebrates when you get yes. to 10,000, right? It, it makes a big deal out of it. And I get there about two days a week, but my goal is really to get there every day, not because I think it's magical, but because I think more is better than less. And I'm certainly not in a stage where 10,000 steps is damaging for me in any way, right? It's not excessive for me. <laughs> yeah. So this, and I think this is a great example, right? In this case, it's helpful that if you overshoot, it's like, okay, you know, I, I overshot. And, and then maybe that's fine that it doesn't have to be, you know, 4,000 steps. Um, the part that sometimes I'll encounter is with uh, students or other people that I'm working with, they get really frustrated and um, they, they lose motivation because they're like, I just never hit that mark. And so when I tell them, oh, just so you know, that's just an arbitrary mark. And like, if you get the little like, you know, flying spaceship on your Fitbit, that's great. But honestly, the activity that you're doing is more important. Um, and for many people that can be a relief. And so that's part of why um, I like to talk a little bit about um, just debunking some of the myths that are out there because for many students, it can be something where it's like, well, I'm not gonna even do that because I, I don't get anywhere near that. I only get 3000 steps, so what's the point? And it's like, no, 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 there's still a lot of value in that. Yeah, so what do you think is the crossover here to yoga practitioners? Yeah, so I think the crossover to yoga practitioners is um, understanding a little bit more about kind of the mechanisms of um, behavior and um, how we um, can form basically positive uh, behaviors. And so if I think about that for yoga teachers, you know, we know right now, and this again is based on some recent um, studies, really recent actually this year, that anxiety is almost two times increased during the pandemic um, compared to pre-pandemic. And then we also know that depression is, is um, about a threefold increase. So in terms of mental health, Practices like yoga, meditation, they're critical right now. And so being able to help students start a, a new habit of, of practicing yoga or practicing meditation uh, and then being able to sustain that is critical right now. And um, I know that, you know, when I talk to so many uh, friends, family members, students, it, it can feel kind of daunting about how do I do this. And so I think the crossover is to really demystify what's involved so that you feel like you have practical steps of like, oh, this is how I could go about doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And I want to dive into that for sure. I guess I was thinking um, specifically about that phenomenon of getting dismotivated when you don't uh. hit your goal. Like where, how, where's the, where's the crossover there? Um, and maybe we can kind of brainstorm about that. One thing that comes to me is within specifically for yoga teachers, that there is a standard held up or an idea, like you need to have a home practice. It needs to be every day. It needs to look like this. And you know, different people, depending on who their teachers were, are going to have different ideas about what their home practice looks like. And for me, I have found my home practice to be incredibly helpful. Like just, just like what you said, you know, like survival level, <laughs> what, what would I do without this? Right? right. But it doesn't necessarily look a certain way. It has evolved. Yeah. It, it's always in evolution. And one thing that's really fascinating for me, um, observing my own behaviors, 
and response to behaviors is that a daily practice, it's not about, it's not about like there's some magical benefit from doing it every day. It's actually for me, it cements the habit. If I have days off, then I'm always confused. It's like, am I doing it today? Am I not? You know, but if it's a daily practice, so this is, this is for me, this is my morning. I get up, my alarm goes off at 5.30. I go downstairs into my kitchen. I drink a little cup of coffee and then I go downstairs into my, this room that I'm in right now. And you can see behind me, my mat is always laid out. I've got like all kinds of like equipment there. And I do my practice for about an hour. And some, some days I almost always, I start by rolling on massage balls. Cause that's like, I can definitely convince myself to do that. <laughs> I can definitely convince myself to do that. Anything else is like some days, yes, some days, no. But so I, so I always start with self-massage and then, you know, what's after that depends, right? Is it more vigorous? Is it more gentle? It, you know, is it more restorative even, um, that will change. But if I didn't have that daily commitment to it, I know from past experience, from observing myself in the past, that I would just forget about it for sometimes weeks at a time. I, get, I think there's two threads here. Like one, having the intention for daily can be helpful, but it can also be harmful if you beat yourself up about it when you don't hit it. Mm-hmm. Or if you have some really rigid idea about what that practice is supposed to look like, because certain forms of yoga asana are probably not best practiced daily. And so, you know, you have to kind of take that into consideration too, like wear and tear on your body and recovery. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So th- this is the really key points that you're bringing up. And the nice um, thing is that um, you've just articulated some of the, the key uh, processes that are involved. So one of them is that you're anticipating challenges, right? So you talked about how you have the little massage balls to roll on to get started. That actually is part of effective behavior change. We know that if you can anticipate what are called inflection moments, where you're going to encounter difficulty or setbacks, not like, you know, once I have this habit, I've transcended all difficulty and challenges and forever, you know, everyone bow down in awe at my amazingness. That doesn't happen, right? The reality is that we're human and that we're going to revert back to uh, our old habits and, and our old patterns. And so if we can just be honest and say, yeah, this, there are going to be times when it's not going to be every day or it's going to be, maybe it's just I got on the mat and it was for five minutes or it was 10 minutes, but I got on the mat and you celebrate that, that's really key. And so... Um, I think just as you described, it's sort of like if we talk about that in terms of motivation, right? We don't have to set some super high bar. We can just say it's really just getting to the mat. Like that is the start of this new habit. And so um, I think this is where a lot of people get tripped up as they set their goals so high. And the classic example of this is, uh, you know, New Year's goals. It's like we set these huge goals and then in January and then by February, it's like, wait, what were they again? I don't remember. (laughs) And if we just set them really small, then we get the power of momentum and small wins. Um, And so that's, I'm really glad that you're kind of bringing up this, this key point. Um, and then the other part that I really liked is that you're you're sharing how we can start to get curious if it feels like it's becoming just a another chore or to do or feeling confined or constricted by it, right? This idea that there's an ideal practice or there's something that we have to do. And um, 
that for me has always been a little prompt to say, okay, I need to be more mindful here because if it's feeling like this is constriction, then I'm going to lose the um, desire to keep doing this because it just feels like another chore, another to do. Uh, there's a really uh, famous um, instruction from a meditation teacher. Uh, this is Minga Rinpoche. He likes to talk about how, um, and it's actually a very old practice, but he puts it in modern terms. He says, you know, if you got 15 minutes to practice, just practice for 13 minutes and then take two minutes to celebrate that you practice for 13 minutes. And that's brilliant because what you're doing is you're adding in a reward, right? Which is tied into uh, the formation of habits is that you have a reward. So if you do it for 13 minutes and you take two minutes to celebrate, you're cementing a new habit. Um, and I think that's just a really cool idea. And it keeps it fun. It feels less chore-like. So a lot of students will come to me and say, oh, I just I can't meditate right now. And I'm like, that's okay. Take whatever time you got, shorten it by about a minute or two, and then do something you love for a minute or two when you're done. And they come back and they go, I can do that? This feels like cheating. And I was like, no, this is not. This is how you form a habit. Like work with how we're wired to be able to develop a healthy habit. I love that. And what you were talking about, it actually reminds me of another crossover, which is that I create programs, online courses, memberships for yoga teachers, but yoga teachers are humans. And yoga teachers that I work with also create online courses and memberships and, and different structures for learning and growing for their students. And one of the big things that I do, and I do that, I, I know I've heard a lot of this before, but it's also at this point a little bit intuitive. So it's really cool and fun to hear you kind of lay it out is that anticipating problems, because I feel like that's what I've been doing. I have been mentoring and coaching yoga teachers one-on-one -on -one for the past, well, really intensively for the past two or three years, but longer than that. But I feel like one of the big reasons to work with people one-on-one -on -one is to be able to anticipate challenges, to observe their challenges so that you can extrapolate like, oh, that's a challenge. I've seen that many times. Now, when I work with somebody new, now when I create a group program, I can account for that challenge. And um, one, one example of this is sending out way more email reminders than like logically you think people need. <laughs> Not just one, <laughs> but like multiple reminders. They all have the links, they all, you know, things like that where you kind of learn over time. This is what is going to be helpful. This is going to help people get over that hump and get access to the content that they want and that will be helpful to them. Yeah, exactly. And there's a, another really cool piece, which um, might be interesting again for us to just talk about. Um, so bringing in that dimension of the relational and that sort of coaching piece and helping others. Um, so there's some really cool work that's been done um, that looks at the importance of um, not only kind of connections when we feel stuck, but also why having uh, these moments of kind of resonance with another person or where it's like positive. So just as you're talking, like you're smiling and then I'm smiling and that kind of uh, feedback, feed forward and feedback is really critical. And so there was some work that was done um, by a psychologist from um, University of North Carolina. Her name is Dr. Barbara Fredrickson. And she really worked on um, positive psychology. That's, that's her area. 
And she has this really cool theory, and she's done a lot of studies on this. It's called the broaden and build theory. And what it basically says is that when we come into contact with positive emotions, our perception actually broadens, it widens, so that we can take in new information, new ideas, and even be open to new behaviors. And um, once we do that, once we have this kind of um, broader perception, we build on top of it. So it's like we have a small little new behavior, and then we build on top of it, and then we build on top of it. And then pretty quickly, we have this um, really powerful new set of habits and strategies and, you know, thought patterns. And, and um, what I'm hearing is that my guess is, is that in your sessions with students and yoga, you know, teachers, and um, that there's those moments of resonance so that when you have that kind of, you know, you're there, you're helping them. Once they feel that they then actually are shifting out of feeling stuck because they can actually take in things in a wider view. And she showed this in a study where she basically showed when we have a positive emotion, we see global detail. When we're really stressed, we see local detail. And so it's the old, you know, forest and the trees metaphor, but here it's applied actually for how we're hardwired. So what we perceive is more global when we're in a positive state and what we perceive is more local when we're in a negative state. And that makes sense, right? Because of survival, like if I need to understand, you know, is that bush that's moving a, a tiger that's going to eat me? I don't want to be looking at the sunset and going, oh, that's beautiful, right? I need to figure out locally in my environment, is that thing going to get me? And so that's how we're hardwired. And so we can actually use that to our advantage. Yeah, that makes sense. So much sense actually it gives me a lot of insight about why the coaching is powerful because I have noticed, and it's very rewarding both for me and for the client, they can be having a hard day at the beginning of the session. And just by having somebody asking them questions and having, you know, cause I'm not having their bad day. Right. And even if I'm having a bad day, I can let that go because my job is to focus on them when they show up. And so by watching me get excited about the solutions to their problems, there's something about that that makes them feel safe. And then that whole chain reaction happens. And so many times at the end of a session, a client will say, I feel so much better. I feel so excited about my business and everything I'm doing. And, you know, I'm kind of like, well, you know, I just asked you questions and I had some ideas, but I'm like, I'm not really sure what the magic is here. <laughs> but so now you've kind of explained to me what the magic is, that it's that, that resonance and that way that we can help each other feel safe and comfortable. Yeah. And, and specifically, um, there's even within uh, Dr. Barbara Ferguson's work, she talks about these 10 positive emotional states. One of those positive emotional states is curiosity. So by you being curious about another person's situation, holding the space, just being open, interested, holding the attentional field on whatever the issue is that they have, that is a positive emotional state. So that is already cueing them into a state of I'm open to new ideas. I can see things from a different um, uh, vantage point. So that's huge, you know, and it's, it's like, I, I try to tell my students so often, I'm like, this is so ordinary, it's extraordinary. Like when you give somebody the gift of your attention and you're curious with them, it creates a whole different view of the situation. You don't have to say a word. It's just you being interested and curious. That's enough to create a shift. That's so beautiful. I have been thinking about and kind of meditating on curiosity a lot 
lately. So that's another synchronicity <laughs> that 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 came up. Do you remember the other positive emotional states from that research? Yeah, um, I, I don't know if I can recall all 10, but I can give you a flavor for them. And actually, it's interesting because this will tie back into the marketing side. So there's this funny play between like the behavior change scientists and marketing. It's sort of like the marketers intuit these uh, things and then scientists sort of like verify them later. So um, another one is awe. Um, so the state of awe is uh, another state is um, gratitude. Um, another one is contentment. Um, so love. Right. I mean, just hearing these, it's like, oh, yeah, like I, I understand these are, you know, I can feel how that it kind of opens me up. And so to, I'll give you a little marketing anecdote. There's a reason why um, Apple products for a very long time um, have been using these big vistas of like, you know, El Capitan or uh, and you see that. And it's because they know the research of all. So when you see that kind of big vista of El Capitan, you're in a positive emotional state. So that means that your relationship to their product, you're much more receptive to that. And so again, there's this really, you know, interesting tie in between sort of like what marketers do. And now we have to be careful here, right? Because we don't want to manipulate people. But at the same time, marketers are saying, I know something intuitively that if I can get somebody into a more positive state, they're going to be more open to whatever the product is. Uh, and so same thing, actually, the history of um, habit loops goes all the way back to toothpaste. I mean, you know, it's just, just really interesting. Uh, that, and so for me, I just find this stuff fascinating. I could geek out on this all day, but I'll pause here. <laughs> no, I mean, I actually do also, <laughs> which is why I got so excited about the, the topic idea. Um, what I'm finding interesting, so you threw out five of those 10 positive emotional states, and I have used every single one of those as a yoga class theme. So I think yoga teachers also intuit this, yes. that if we can inspire our students to connect to some of these positive emotional states, then they're going to associate coming to class <laughs> with feeling awesome. <laughs> yes. And then they're going to come more often. Yes. Yes. And, and I would also say that it, particularly now, I mean, you know, we're doing this interview uh, in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, I would challenge, you know, all the listeners to think about what is something I can do because of COVID that's really needed rather than in spite of COVID, right? Because so many of us are in this mindset of like, oh, all right, so I'm going to do this. And yeah, it's kind of in spite of the fact that, blah, 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 blah. but because we're in the situation and there's such a great need, you have an incredible opportunity to help a lot of people if you can use some of this understanding around, you know, whether it's Dr. Robert Fredrickson or if it's, you know, some of the, the earlier work that was looking at um, uh, behavior change. You know, there's even um, Dr. Judson Brewer. I mean, there's all this amazing stuff out there that shows you how this can work. And just by helping people to make contact with a positive emotional state in a yoga class, that has ripple effects on family, friends, community. It's super powerful for sure. So how else can yoga teachers tap into the science of behavior change to help their students specifically? I'll use another example. I think um, this is one um, with my daughter again, because so much was uh, disrupted during, uh, you know, when everything shut down. So she was taking a music class and, um, you know, it, it shut down. So they were no longer able to go in class and uh, to go in person rather. And um, yet we as a family wanted her to still be able to have these, you know, 
experience of being in a music class with other kids. And so what I watched was the um, organization that was doing these classes just kind of starting to move into an act and learn phase where they would send out messages and like, we know this is going to be imperfect. We don't quite know what we're doing yet, but we just want to get everyone on Zoom and we're going to try to have a music class. And so what was brilliant about this, and I don't think that they ever quite, um, uh, I mean, I didn't get to have a conversation with them about this, but they were tapping into this key part of behavior change, which is if we know about uh, habit formation, the very simple habit loop is that you uh, have a cue or a trigger. And then after that cue or trigger, you have a routine or a behavior. And then the final thing is you have a reward. And this is old, old stuff, and it's well-known and well-researched. And so what was so brilliant is that um, this um, you know, music class, we already had the behavior of it's 10 o'clock on Thursday. That's when my daughter goes to music class. So all they needed to do was change or substitute right the cue or the trigger. And so the, the trigger for this was, okay, okay, it's Thursday, so I need to be thinking about this. And rather than me having to like get in the car and drive over there and you know get my daughter there and, and take her in, it was simply saying, well, now I just need to click a Zoom link and then there's the behavior that I already know, which is that here's the music class. And then the reward was I get to see my daughter socializing with other kids. That's positive for me. I get to see her, you know, interacting um, with uh, the people that she knows. There's familiar faces. So they actually tapped into an existing habit loop, whereas other um, uh, experiences that were, um, you know, let's say it was going to the local gym, right? It shut down. I didn't hear from them. They took a wait and see approach. They didn't immediately say, well, let's act and learn. Let's just figure this out. So what happened was rather than retaining me, there was attrition because I just had that routine, but there was no longer a cue or reward. And then eventually that routine, it didn't do anything because there was no more opportunity to engage uh, with the studio. So I think those are just some some examples of where yoga teachers can really benefit. And I know there's a, there can be a lot of anxiety and overwhelm about, oh, I don't want to do this online stuff. I really want to, you know, just wait until this is over or it's so overwhelming, you know, technology, like I'm allergic to it. Um, but the nice thing is that if you can um, tap into, uh, you know, these behaviors that your students already have, um, you can actually leverage the habits that they have. But if you wait too long, you're likely going to lose them. Right. And the boat has probably <laughs> sailed yeah. for, for anybody who was uh, attending in person in March. But there still is, you know, depending on what part of the country you live in, there there may have been some outdoor um, classes over the summer that you can leverage into online things. And this is really interesting because one of the things, so like I have a membership for yoga teachers and because I have people all over the world, I switch up the times of things. And I wonder if that's maybe a mistake. Like maybe I need to pick a set day and time and just say, sorry, Aussies. Um, <laughs> Cause they're probably the ones that are going to get the short end of the stick. What do you think? Like, 
Well, um, this 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 would be an interesting uh, an interesting question. I can tell you, there's two things that are coming to mind. So um, I'll say one little um, footnote is that if if you missed the boat back in March, one of the nice things is that it's easier to create a new habit than it is to modify an old one. So even if you missed it, you can help students create new habits. You just have to get them in the mindset of okay, this is a new habit we're going to be starting. Um, it's going to need to be relevant because if it's not relevant to you know the the context of what they're struggling with, it's not likely going to form because we're so overwhelmed right now with all the things we have to do. Um, so just a little footnote, because I, I don't want anybody to feel discouraged as we're um, talking through all of this. Um, so it, talking about the, the different times, um, there's some uh, old, old work. This actually goes back to like B.F. Skinner and the pigeon and the pellets. Um, so this is basically an old psychology experiment that was looking at behavior. And it was this idea of variable reward systems, right? And we've all heard about this before. But if you vary things up, then actually it, um, it kind of prompts a desire in people to want to continue to do something because you're uncertain of the outcome. And um, the... Um, a lot of technology companies use this, gaming companies use this, um, even email is an example of this, where it's sort of like, all right, I think this thing might be relevant to me, I get a little ding, I'm going to go in, I get a, you know, a little positive uh, burst of dopamine, I'm going to go look at my email, oh, that's not what I wanted, okay, well, maybe the next one will be good, and then I wait for the next email, and so we actually get into this sort of like, oh, I'm agitated. I gotta go look. Oh no, that's not it. Oh, because it's variable. We don't know if we just won the lottery that the email that just came in is like, you know, the best news ever, or if it's, you know, kind of something that deflates us. So uh, the reason why I'm bringing that up is because having the variability uh, isn't necessarily a bad thing because it can actually then prompt people to, you know, actually be more engaged in some ways. Um, but on the other hand, if we know that we're overwhelmed, so the downside of, um, what I was just describing is that's actually how we start to develop um, being hooked to something. It's similar to addiction. And so um, it's draining ultimately for us to have that kind of cycle. So it's easier, particularly for overwhelm, to deal more with the simple process of cue, routine, reward. So I think in the example you were um, just sharing, setting up that set time can help people to just say, oh, this, okay, this is the routine. I'm going to go to this class. And the reward is, oh, I feel really good. I feel great. Um, so if I had to, if I had to guess which way it's going to come out, my guess is that since we're all overwhelmed right now with just the state of everything that's going on, simplifying it to that routine loop is going to be probably a little bit, uh, a little bit more successful. That's really interesting. You know, what I may end up doing in the long run is offering like two options. Um, I'm not there yet where that makes sense for me to do, but perhaps that's kind of the the long-term compromise. So one of the things that this little thread has brought up for me is the way that so many yoga teachers struggle with consistent attendance in their weekly classes. And so it seems like what you just described might explain why workshops and pop-up classes can often be way more successful than a class. Like, you know, it's going to be there it's going to be there every single week, but you have to make that decision to show up or not every single week, which yes. is why I always advise yoga teachers run series classes or yes. run a membership so that people have made that decision once 
they've said, I'm committed to showing up to this class. Don't force them to make that decision every single week and pay a drop in. It's not in their best interest. It's not in your best interest. It just is not, does not work well with kind of what you were saying earlier, how human nature is like how we function. Yes. And it's, and so this is a key point because when we're talking about being hooked, it's stressful, right? It actually is stress inducing. And so all these little micro decisions, there's also this concept of decision fatigue and we're all having to make decisions based on um, uncertain data right now because we're, and it's on an individual level, right? And, and, you know, depending on where your listeners are, um, you know, here in the United States, a lot of this has fallen on the individual family unit to make these decisions based on all this conflicting information. So that means that if I take that into context, I know that the average person is totally burned out about having to make decisions. And I, if I have to make another decision, but it's an optional one, not one that's like necessary to my family's functioning, it's going to get a lot less attention. And it's also, if I'm fatigued, I'm going to be like, I don't need to go this week. I just, I'm burned out. My daughter didn't sleep well last night. I know the class is there. I'll get it next week. Versus just like what you said, the series, if you commit to it and you, you know, you pay once it's uh, eight weeks, you have the, the, um, advantage of knowing that there are social mechanisms because you know that everyone that signed up for that class, it's likely going to be the same people every week. You might get a little variability right in attendance, but the people that signed up are going to be with you through that whole series. So there's a social mechanism that's going to engage you. The other thing is that because of the commitment, you now don't have to think about, oh, I have to every single time register and pay. It's like you already did that. So just as you said, it's now simplifying the process so that I don't have to make yet another decision. So it's really important. And actually the, um, the evidence, I just looked at this um, last week, shows uh, from what we, what we know so far, the best available um, information we have is that if you had series um, and uh, uh, kind of these classes already scheduled versus drop-ins, you did better in terms of your revenue uh, relative to those that only had weekly or drop-ins. And so we're actually seeing this in the data in terms of, uh, you know, who fared better during the first three, four months of the pandemic. Um, so it's a really important point that you're bringing up. It really speaks to, I think one of the things that you said, you didn't quite say it in these terms, but I'm speaking for myself. This is what I've noticed about myself, but I'm extrapolating, especially based on what you just said, that I think this is universal. We'll put off making the decision and then the decision will be made for us by our lack of making a decision. Yes. And those decisions are not necessarily the best decisions for us. Those decisions that we've just put off. We're, we're not cognitively evaluating <laughs> the situation and instead we are allowing circumstances to kind of rule us which you know sometimes we have to sometimes this you know like this just where we're at and that's okay but I think this is one of the ways that yoga teachers can use an understanding of the science of behavior to both help their students, attend more class more regularly, get more benefit from their practice, and then also for them have a more sustainable business. Yeah. And there's a, so there's a corollary here that um, is important to name. So um, 
when we're talking about being stressed, there's actually another system that's involved kind of in our hardwiring, right? And um, there's this term that's used a lot these days called the amygdala hijack, right? And so the amygdala is that little almond-sized cluster that's in our limbic system that um, predates our neocortex. So our neocortex, rational thought, things that we think about, that came later. It evolved on top of the limbic system. And we know actually that the amygdala, uh, which is responsible for when we have strong emotions like fear or worry or all these different things, um, that it actually, um, it's twice as fast in its response than the prefrontal lobes, like the prefrontal cortex. So the frontal lobes are going to be slower than this fear center, um, which means that unless we actually um, have kind of established um, these uh, habits or we've you know, trained or we've kind of ingrained ourselves, it's more likely that that fear center is going to be in the driver's seat as opposed to rational thinking. And so if we extrapolate, just like what you were saying, if I'm stressed and overwhelmed, that's going to be driving my behavior. Unless I'm conscious, oh, I'm really stressed right now. I need to actually, um, you know, do this practice that I know helps me to be a little bit more thoughtful, a little bit more mindful, a little bit more aware. And so this is where, um, you know, in different areas, like um, if you look at anybody that's uh, training at this kind of elite level, this is what they'll practice. So one of the um, classic examples, and this was Michael Phelps, who trained um, in for all possible scenarios, anything that could go wrong, like, you know, goggles slipping off in the middle of an Olympic uh, swim match. And um, the reason for that was so that when the fear came in, that was like, I already know how to deal with this. I've, I've thought about this. There's a plan. It's sort of getting back to what we're talking about with inflection points. It's sort of like I'm pre-anticipating this difficulty. And so you can do the same thing with your students. If you pre-anticipate, wait a minute, I can anticipate that you are overwhelmed right now because I feel overwhelmed. So how can I ease that burden so that you're less in a fear center and you're more in the positive center, which is the reward center? Um, and that gets back again to the positive emotions. And I think the cool thing about that is we can observe this within ourselves, like you said, then we can speak to our students about it and they will be like, oh my God, it's like you read my mind. You're the perfect teacher for me because you really get me. You really understand me. That's right. And it's, and what's interesting is that you're understanding it on this level of, you know, how we're wired, right? And so in that sense, you can relate. And this is, I mean, we're wired for empathy, right? And I mean, uh, mirror neurons, all this stuff. So just see it in yourself and then you can talk to your clients and they're going to think you understand me. And it's because you do, because you've understood it yourself. And so now you can talk about it with somebody else. Well, I love this because this really feels like it almost comes full circle and kind of lands right back squarely in the realm of our own practice where we want to observe ourselves and we want to be paying attention to the subtle cues of our nervous system, the subtle cues of like, where does my brain go? And making a little space around that to, you know, and and that's part of the benefit and the purpose of a meditation practice is to not always be ruled by our our thoughts, our thought loops, and instead to, to give them some space to observe them and then to have this space where we feel safe enough that our amygdala is not hyperactive, but instead we can bring our prefrontal lobe on, on board and, and notice, okay, these, I notice I'm, my, my chest feels tight. I notice that I feel like I should be doing something. 
And we can use those self-observations and those insights to help our students. So that's, that's a really beautiful full circle, I think. Well, wonderful. I think that was a wonderful summary. So thanks for summarizing. <laughs> so do you have any, anything that you wanted to share that we haven't covered yet that you think is really important or anything that you want to emphasize or repeat? Maybe just a simple reminder that um, it's simple, but not easy. So everything that we talked about, um, you know, and you can look all this up after um, listening to this, um, it's simple. Um, and to just also remember that, you know, it can be challenging to put this into practice. So, you know, as I describe it, it can be like, oh my gosh, this seems, it sounds like this is, this is so simple, but the trick is in the application. So just be really kind with yourself, be patient. Um, and, um, I would say celebrate the small wins. I mean, that's really the big piece. And and don't forget the power of curiosity. So whether that's curiosity for yourself, your own, uh, sort of if I think about mindfulness, right, it's sort of this idea that oh, I'm curious, I'm introspective on my own experience. And then that naturally will lead to a curiosity with your students, with others in your life. And that in of itself is really transformative. So, um, be kind as you apply these principles and remember that the small things go a long way, such as curiosity and um, just being interested. Right? And I, that's kind of what I feel like this whole discussion was. We were just interested. We were kind of exploring where it went and I had a lot of fun. I did too. I, that's what I love about the podcast. I mean, I just get to have super smart and inspired people and have conversations with them. <laughs> I know that you know you're you're here partially as a representative of Offering Tree, which we've been in contact for a couple of years now, and I know a lot of yoga teachers really appreciate the help. And I think it's really cool for yoga teachers to listen to somebody like you come in and like, wow, the people behind Offering Tree, like they're really thoughtful, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like this isn't this isn't a normal company tech company well thank you because we strive for that so we are you know we're a benefit uh, corporation so we have a public mission and we're about trying to further uh, access and education around wellness and we apply these same principles so actually just the other day i was um, talking about this when we think about it as a company there's different things that we're doing we're trying to uh, partner to learn so this is just like, you know, being on this podcast and there's so much that we learn in the exchange. We learn together, we co-create. Um, so do that in a lot of different ways and um, with colleagues um, like yourself, with, um, you know, the users that are using the platform, creating a learning community. We also are really dedicated to this idea of um, kind of tech powered relationships. So rather than technology being this like brick wall that you keep running into, it's sort of like, how can we use technology to help you further the relationships with your students and clients? And then the last thing um, that I think we really aspire to is around making meaning. So how do we make meaning? How do we make it relevant? Um, how do we um, go deeper? And just like we're doing today in a conversation where we can delve deeper and you go, oh, that's a new insight. That's really cool. I didn't think about that. Um, so that's what gets me really excited. It gets me really passionate. So I'm so delighted, um, you know, that you brought that up. And the last time you and I talked, it was about the power of technology to connect. So yes. if anybody listening has not heard that, you might want to check that out. I'll make sure to find the, the 
link and put it in the show notes. Well, thank you so much, Alex. This was an awesome conversation. And I'm sure that we will continue having, you know, more conversations over the, the years that we continue to do this work. Well, thank you so much, Mado. It was, it was wonderful to be here. It's always a delight. And um, yeah, thanks for inviting me. So a big part of the reason that I'm so into behavior modification is that it's a skill set that we humans really, really need in order to integrate self-care into our lives in a way that's sustainable and long-term. I see self-care as an essential antidote to the direction that our culture seems to be moving, which is increasingly digital with more and more stimulation. One of the best examples of this in my own life is my home yoga practice. Ever since I first started yoga teacher training, which was about 18 years ago, the importance of home practice was hammered home, but I don't remember any discussion on how to create that as a habit. And the subtle message I received, whether that was intentional or not, probably not, but what I heard was that it was a matter of virtue, that if I just cared enough about my practice, was a dedicated practitioner, I would just do it. And the implication that I understood is that if I didn't practice regularly, it was almost a moral failing. I don't know if my own teachers struggled with their home practice or not. They never talked about struggling, just about how important it was. So I was left feeling, gosh, what is wrong with me that this is so hard? I think the big reason I kept trying is that my self-image as a yoga teacher was really important to me. And I had had that message hammered home that the home practice was essential. So I never gave up, even though I struggled and struggled and struggled. The intention to build that regular practice stayed with me as my ability to fulfill it ebbed and flowed. Now, these days, there are so many books and resources out there about habit formation and behavior change but most of them have been published within the last 10 years, maybe even five years. So for me, it's been a combination between really getting to know myself and observing myself and taking this on as a challenge and an experiment. Why is this so hard for me? And how can I support other people in taking this on? Because it's a really beautiful thing to take on. As I mentioned earlier, I find it to be an elegant antidote for all the bombarding of sensory stimuli that this modern world provides. And I intend to record a podcast episode about that, about specifically working within the context of this world that we live in and how we can take some of the teachings from yoga philosophy and apply them to the way that we are currently in today's world, specifically around social media and the other types of stimulus that is so prevalent right now. Meanwhile, if you have struggled with consistency in your home practice or any other habits in your life that you would like to create, I hope you heard some helpful nuggets during today's conversation. I hope you felt inspired by the possibility for change. If you want 
more resources for further study, Alex is providing a list that you can receive by getting on my email list at teachingyoga.net slash join. If you hear nothing else today, I want you to know that it's actually really normal to struggle with changing your behavior because so much of it comes from your amygdala, which as Alex mentioned, is twice as fast as your prefrontal lobe where your, your logical thinking happens. So you need to have not just a really strong motivation, you also need to understand some basic concepts about how humans form habits. And once you do understand that, I can tell you from personal experience, you can make some pretty magical shifts. I would say for me, the biggest shift and the biggest insight has been to have a really doable minimum for your habit, something that you can truly make happen every single day, no matter what else is going on in your life. So this might be five minutes of meditation, or it might even be just lying down on your yoga mat, the ritual of rolling out your mat, lying down on it, maybe putting your hand on your belly or your hand on your heart and focusing on your breath for a few breaths. That minimum version is going to keep your intention to grow your habit front and center every single day. And I believe it's really the key for creating neural pathways that will support the type of behavior that you know supports your well-being. That is all for this week, my friend. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for caring enough to teach yoga. Whatever else is happening in your life, remember to make time even just a tiny bit of time for your personal practice. Doesn't matter how long it is. Doesn't matter what you actually do during that time. What matters is that you carve out a container and you say, this space is sacred. These moments in time are my commitment to being present with myself and for myself.